get started in this morning. We got a we got a ton to cover, and it's it's real technical because, again, d like everything else in the book of Hebrews, because we are not Hebrew and because we are have, are not under the system of the law, and not have seen a lot of these things exercised. It's it's really difficult sometimes to even read through like Le we've done this week with Leviticus 16 and try to figure out the order of what's been said in there and I can tell you a couple of people even stopped me in church yesterday and said are you going to talk about this order of stuff because I'm really confused right I had more than one of you do it so if you were one don't you know don't feel like you're alone in this um, and I do think somebody uh, another conversation I had uh was uh, uh, about you know the things that we discuss in our classrooms I said you know the emphasis that we have in our group is to work out the technical, right? Because I feel like, at least for me, it, once I realize the, the full understanding of a passage, then I'm able to take it on my own as I travel and traverse through my life to make the application in my personal life, to look at, a, at a, uh, the end result of some whatever our study of, of has been for that particular week, and I'm able to take that and say in my, in my mind, this has taught me this principle or this truth, and when life throws at me an issue, I often am able to then grab back into that bucket of things that I have built up on and go, oh, but do you remember that this is true about God and this is how God deals with it and this is what is true about the end of the age, this is true about our world today, this is true about the subject of sin, this is what's true about God's sovereignty, this is what's true about my salvation, this is what's true about whatever, right? Um, and so for us, as we are looking right now today at something that is so technical, there are, gonna, there are some who would look at our work together and go, why are you bothering with all that, right? <laughs> that what they don't, I don't think they understand is the value of really understanding the technical sometimes gives you insight to a, the spiritual reality of what God is trying to teach us. When we, when we go from... Uh, what we're going to look here today at, which is the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And when we're finished with this today, we're going to come back the next week and move forward in our homework. We're going to get back into Hebrews 9 more seriously. We're going to be able to look at Hebrews 9 and see insights and have understandings that we would not be able to grasp or comprehend. There are truths that you will miss if you don't understand the technicalities from looking at the old when you move into the new. So there's a rhyme and a reason to everything. Sometimes in our inductive Bible study classes, part of our lessons as we, we traverse through it are, are about technically just working out the, the, the points. So today is one of those days. It's going to be about looking at Leviticus 16. We want to see the order of things, how things were done, and what the, what the picture was. Once we know that, then we can step back from it and say, now why? Why did he have him do this? And why was it that kind of sacrifice? And why was there this distinction versus this distinction? And my question would be for all of us to consider, and I'm going to throw it out there right now, is when you consider all the things that you looked at this week, and as you went through 16, did you all break it down into paragraphs? so that you could see your each year. Good job. I'm seeing a few heads nodding. Because that is super significant, because if you can break it into your paragraphs, you can see the progression of how he moves from one 
part of the process or ritual to the next part of that process or ritual, right? And when you break it down like that, then you can kind of see what he's, what he's handling systematically when you go through. Um, when you see that there are specific breaks and there's one point address and then another point address, why do you think there's these different points? Why do you think that there is one kind of sacrifice for one person, then another sacrifice for another person, and then a, nef a, a certain kind of a washing, and then a certain kind of an animal, and a certain kind of two different goats, and so forth. Why? What's the point to having all these specifics that God says, by the way, do it exactly as I say, or do not approach me, or you'll die? Okay, so what you're saying then is that these things in some way point forward to what Christ will be doing. Okay, very good. It's almost like some of the prophecies of Jesus back, you know, when you consider he had to be born from a certain tribe, he had to come from a certain um, uh, area of, you know, location-wise, and he had all these different, so he had to fulfill all these different points, and then when he came forward and he did it, it's like nobody else could have done that, right? And how could anyone make that one person have all those things culminate in them, right? So that that's true that they just point to so many things that there's a supernatural quality to it that kind of, presents itself in your mind, okay? That's a good point, Carol. The, I mean, one of, so one of the truths besides it pointing to Jesus is God is also saying, and this is how you must approach me. There's a flip side to that. What is that? <laughs> Why can't you approach him, Right? Why can't we approach him just any old time we want and in any old way we want, right? Well, sending curses is one thing. I mean, it's like Aaron to make um, atonement for the congregation. Kirk had to make atonement for himself. Mm -hmm. So he had to, you know, it's, it's like your sins, Aaron, have to be taken care of before sure. you can deal with mm -hmm. the people. And I think there's a real important point about his his atonement for Aaron and his household that we need to talk about too that I think has a little different nuance to it than just being about Aaron, but yes, okay? I think a lot of it is spiritual as well as physical. Okay, absolutely. You know what, that's interesting that you kind of go there because some people actually said they flip. It, do, do you think, I, somebody said to me, do you think that God instituted all these food laws and all these clothing laws for health reasons? And I went, well, they probably had some health benefits, certainly. But was that his purpose? Yeah. No. God is holy ruler, and he needed to establish for us who was sovereign and who was not. Okay. The, 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 in the picture, then, that we're looking at this week of each of these processes, it, it serves, then, to highlight to us 
how holy he is and how unholy we are. And therefore, and therefore, you actually accomplish what the law said, what is the purpose for the law. In Romans, one of the things that you see in there is to show that man is a sinner and in need of a Savior. And to point the way to Jesus. Right. I And not only that, you're so stupid, I have to make it on a su super duper level that you can understand and relate to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and when, how many of you have found it surprising how little the, the, ex the executing of the law actually did for them? That it really was, it never took away sins. How many of you knew that prior to this, that the law really never accomplished salvation? It never accomplished the washing away of sin. As a matter of fact, the doing of it was a reminder year by year that what? That they were still sinners. And because their conscience was never... Uh, set free from the law. The law was a perpetual thing. They must do it over and over and over until what? Until a time of reformation would come. When the reformation came, and were they aware that there was going to be a reformation coming? Absolutely. Why? What? How, now, they didn't certainly didn't know it at the, in the days of Moses, but the, shortly thereafter came a prophet, right? Is uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, various ones, but particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who said one day he's going to do what? Mm -hmm. And and make a new a new covenant, not like the old one, right? One day I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the old one. It's going to be a covenant where rather than the law being written on stone, it's going to be a law written where? on your hearts. How is that significantly different for us? Do you think that living under the new just by that one quality alone, how much better is that for us? Okay, yes. Enslavement, because how, did you, how do you think the Jews were enslaved? Hi, Margaret. How, how do you think the Jews were enslaved under the old system? How? Yeah. Okay. It's it's not exactly slavery because I kind of hate to use that word, but yeah, they were there was a regimented. Uh, how does it say it in Romans that it's it's like a like it's a it's, um, you know, around the the a castle. There's a wall that pr that protects the people from falling off the edge, and they would walk around this barrier wall. But the wall kept them from falling outside of that, right? And so that's what the law did for them. It helped them stay within the boundaries, basically, of God's design for them as a people. Um, so the picture was beautiful, but but at the same time, it was what. It, useless and impossible to keep, right? It was impossible. Yes, okay, Carol? Okay, now this week we looked back, let me see, let me look to see what the reference was that we went to because I've forgotten it off the top of my head here. Um, we looked in 1 Samuel 4 at an event, right? In the in your day one homework. And in 1 Samuel's uh 
four, what was that storyline about? What, what happened in that particular record? This was about 300 years after Israel was taken out of Egypt, by the way. So they were living on the land. And what was going on? And lost it. So then it was, so then they decided they were going to uh, uh, try to go back and get it. But th this battle incurred and they, and they lost the possession of the, co or the control of it. And at the end of the story, what, what is it that is declared or made, made as a statement by a particular woman? Right, so she gives birth to a child as she's about to die, and her dying breath is that she makes a statement by naming her child. Now, this is very, very typical in the Old Testament uh, book by the books, by the way. If you look up, anytime you're studying in the Old Testament and you get a person's name, it really behooves you to go and do a word study on their name because their names are almost always filled with a message of some kind. Yeah. Some kind of a message specific to the events of their day or, or, and the culture that they're living in at the time or historically, maybe even in the, in the unfolding of things. Sometimes it's divinely inspired by God and he says, you're going to have a child, name it this, right? But sometimes they themselves simply name their children and in their names, you see a progression, a progression of a story, of an unfolding story. Well, this woman named her child Ichabod. I got a little personal story on this, which is really sad. This tells you how ignorant I was at one time. Um, so it make you feel really good about me. <laughs> okay, this is the woman who's teaching us something. Okay, uh, when my little son Eric was born, my little niece came shortly thereafter, and uh, or shortly before, rather. She was just a little bit, she was the same age as my daughter, just a few weeks after my daughter was born. But couldn't say the name Eric. It was too hard for her. And so she called him Ick. And then my, my sister started calling him Ichabod. Well, that was the name that this woman named her child, right? And we all thought it was so cute. Oh, little Ichabod. And we just thought it was so cute. Well, one day I was at church talking to a friend, and I said, yeah, little Ichabod, he's whatever. And she just had this look of horror on her face. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, well, my sister calls him that. It's just a cute little nickname. She says, do you know what that means? Okay, tell me what Ichabod means. The gl no glory or the glory of God has departed. Whoa. Okay, trust me, I stopped calling my son Ichabod at that very moment. <laughs> I repented of that very quickly. I had no, no idea, had no idea. But see, the difference between the days of old and the days that we have now, we don't name our children based on, uh, generally we don't. Uh, some people do, but, but most of us just pick a name we like. Sounds pretty and we name it, right? So... Um, <sighs> I just think about this woman's message, though, because in their time, the naming of their children had a definite message. So her message was, the glory of God has departed. And why did she say that? Be because the ark of God had gone, and also it also pertained to the fact that her husband and sons had died also, right? Okay, so in doing that, then what does that tell you was in her heart? about her understanding about who God was. She had an impression that, the, that God literally was somehow affixed to the ark itself. Now, what's, what's tricky about this, and you and I, as we're studying this, we have to try to 
dissect some of this for ourselves as well because it'll be very easy for you and I to get sucked into that same thing and say, well, yeah, but the ark, but what if the ark isn't there? Well, then where is God and is it possible to do this or to do that? Well, what, what this storyline I think is actually teaching us is a very valuable lesson about the idea of the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was, a, was what? What was it? Right, right. And who constructed it? The people did. Made out of various pieces of, of things that, and they were, they were things that God designated. So what's very interesting too is if you will look and do some research on some of the things that God instituted concerning what was to be built and what it was to be built out of, there's also symbolic message in a lot of those, like what is the idea of the, of the, the bronze laver and the, 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 the bronze that was put around the outside, what did that depict, right? Does anybody know? Does anybody look that up? Judgment. That's what it, it's the idea of judgment. And so, because why, where God meets with us is judgment, right? Especially in that Old Testament covenant, it was the idea of a judgment that God was meeting with his people. Um, and that is the distinction where we hit in chapter 8 of, of uh, Hebrews, where we see God present to us the contrast, the huge contrast between the old covenant that he made with Israel and the new covenant that he was going to make with his people for today, for us today, through his son, Jesus Christ. The old covenant, how does judgment come into play on that? What, did, what was said in that uh, Jeremiah quote that we looked at in, in 8 about the problem with the old covenant, why it was not as good, our better than covenant with Jesus is compared to it? How, what was the problem with the old Okay, it could not make the people perfect. But in the Jeremiah quote, it doesn't say that. What does it say in the Jeremiah quote? What was the problem with it? <laughs> He's going to remove their heart of stone. But why was he going to replace it and give them a new covenant? What was wrong? That's right. The people did not continue in it, and therefore then God did not what? Did not care for them. Now, Craig, you told me something yesterday. You said instead of God did not care for them, you said, said it could be translated, God did not take care of them. I like that. Because under the old covenant, it was a conditional covenant, right? And what were the, t the conditions that were presented? There was two, two possibilities. Blessings or cursings. Obey and be blessed. And if you disobey, then I will allow these cursings to fall upon you. I will basically remove my hand of protection and allow the, the, your enemies to come in amongst you. I will allow the, the elements of the earth to come against you, the, either the rain to simply stop or for the floods to come and wipe it all away. Either way. So, God, so it was the removal of God's protection and his care in this old covenant. So that was the old one. How was the new then presented in chapter 8 to, at the end then of that quote? What was so distinctively different? Yes, he's going to give them a, a, a new heart. He's going to place his spirit in them. He's going to be their God. They are going to be his people. But how is he going to deal with them in contrast where before he says, I find fault with them because they aren't keeping it and therefore I'm withdrawing my hand of care over them. But in the new covenant, I'm going to have a covenant where I'm going to put my, my spirit in them, and then what? 
their sins shall be remembered no more. So in the new covenant, you may fail God. Would you say that anyone in here does not ever fail God? Is there, no, none of us are really want to, I would never, no, practically perfect, but not perfect, right? Right, that's what, I always love to say that. Mary Poppins, you know. I grew up in that era. Practically perfect in every way. Okay, so, okay, so since we're not perfect, because the whole, the whole point is, are we any different than they were under the old, the, in the old days, in the old covenant days, were those people any different than the people today? of today? No. Are we any better at keeping God's law as new covenant people than we were in old co as old covenant people? No. Absolutely not. Wow. That's a revelation, right? We're no better. We're no different. We still struggle with the same issues of sin. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter, but what is the difference? What is so much better about the new covenant? There you go. It's based on mercy and grace. Woohoo! That's awesome. And I think that if we can nail that down in our minds, that is going to free us from the, the feeling that we, number one, never measure up. No matter what we do, we can never totally please God. Well, guess what? You're right. That is, a, that is a revelation that you really needed to have come to even at the beginning of your faith walk. You can never measure up. That's the reason Jesus did it for us. We can never measure up. But you know what? He knew that. And how, how early in this game plan of humanity did God know this, that we would never measure up? <laughs> I love that. From before the foundation of the world, chapter 4, he said, he said these things that were, had, his work was finished from before the foundation of the world. If you go back to 4.3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He had this plan from the very beginning. Before he even created the first man, he knew not one of us, no, not one. Where is that from? Romans, right? There's, there's, there, are, there are none righteous, no, not one, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is a truth statement, that is a doctrinal statement that's been, that's, that's from time immemorial, from the days in the Garden of Eden. Was there even one in the Garden of Eden who was not a sinner? <laughs> and if anybody had an opportunity to possibly be sinless, it would be Adam and Eve, where there was no real pressure yet from any outside world, you know, there weren't multitudes of people, there weren't TVs and commercials and radios and things to influence, and yet, guess what? They still sinned, right? They still sinned. Okay, so in this new covenant, God does not deal with this. Although it, this is a fact that we're all sinners, it's a fact that we're no different than they were under the old. What, what is so much aw awesomer, is that a word? This what is so much greater, so much better, is that in this new covenant, God deals with us differently. That's what the significant difference is. All right, so... Now what we need to do today then is go back to um, the Old Testament though and really just kind of lay out the progressive steps so that we look at the, the logistics and the specifics because behind the, 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 the rituals is a message, right? But before you're ready to, to analyze it in your mind as to what the message truth is, you have to see what the points are right? And 
and you need to clearly distinguish what each step is so that you see it in and of itself because by doing that then you're able to say okay this step shows me this now this step is going to show me this right or another way of saying it would be he did this and this is how we see the truth of it in Christ this is what Christ did that that was that point Right? So we're going to do that right now. Go in and try to make this systematic list on the, the steps. That's what your most of your homework was this particular week. Okay, so starting with the Day of Atonement, pull out your observation worksheet on Leviticus 16. Um, one of the other things Kay asked us to do, i got to tell you, I'm a dismal failure. She asked us to, on day five, draw a picture of all the things that took place, right, with people sticks and whatever I finally gave up it became such a disaster did anybody get this done successfully and feel like you really when you were done looking at your picture you went oh I see <laughs> I got more confused after what is it I can't hear you I'm sorry oh yes yeah, Susan where's your pictures dear you didn't do them oh we are so disappointed in you <laughs> another dismal failure <laughs> We're waiting to see them next week. Well, you know, one of the, somebody, I can't remember who it was I was chatting with before class started, we were saying how pro probably the best way to do that, rather than her saying draw a stick figure drawing of what you see going on, it might have been better to say take each paragraph and draw a picture of it and then do the next paragraph. And it would be basically like doing Revelation and you would have to have done about eight or nine drawings. And you might be able to then do a, it'd be cool. You can do this, Susan. You could do one of those flip thingies where you, where you know, yeah, yeah, where you can watch him doing it. That'd be so cool. Susan, a challenge, a challenge. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? Those flip books that you can, and it looks like the guy is moving as you go through it. That would be so cool, wouldn't it? Okay, but I have something even better for us this morning because even, even with that having done, I mean, um, and, and I, what I have for us that I think is even better, but also still with that, I, I want to give a little caveat to that statement because, um, because these practices and ceremonies are ancient and because not all, the totality of all information is given in one record, therefore when anyone tries to show us how they actually did it in that day, we're we're kind of guessing at some of it, although we're going to get the big chunky pieces in there, and so there's not going to be any, any issue concerning the point. The clear message will be seen, okay? But there could be some technicalities of, oh, but I don't think they did that. At this point, they did it here or they did it there. or you know, there, there might be some slight differences, and that's because there are other passages that have to be brought in. When I was doing my homework... Let me see if I can find it. Maybe it's over here. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, I managed to find a, a um, uh, commentary that gave me some additional passages that, that gave you further instructions for the Day of Atonement. I'm going to give this to you right now so you can write them down. Um, maybe in the column of your Leviticus 16 observation worksheet just so you have them you may not ever look them up but I did actually look them up and copy them out Exodus 30 10 and he they give you a little bit more uh, information there where it talks about making atonement on on the 
on its horns, and he shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering. So it talks about uh, blood that goes on the horns, which is not in our other Leviticus 16.1. Uh, then Leviticus 23.26-32, it gives you some more insight about the attitude of the people that was expected. We don't see that in the Leviticus 16, but this was a day of humility. They were to come before the Lord in humbleness with a contrite heart, a broken heart concerning sin. So uh, again, the Old Testament and the New Testament is exactly the same in regards to how you approach God. You cannot approach God with a, with a ritual and that be sufficient to meet all the need. There had to still be a brokenness of heart and an attitude of repentance. So it starts with believing God, just as it did with Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The law never saved, but the, but the Abrahamic covenant was something that was available. It, the Abrahamic covenant gave them the, the, uh, the information that they needed to understand that God was making a promise to them concerning a coming seed that was significant. And then for Israel, the nation specific, some other things, the land and the nation qualities, which he's yet going to fulfill, by the way. But the quality of the seed, who is Christ, was the promise. And in the New Testament, in Galatians 3, it says that, a, that what he, God was doing was he was giving Abraham the gospel message concerning that coming seed, who, who would be the one that would have victory, as was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden, victory over Satan. He would crush the head of Satan. All right, so Leviticus 23 gives us more insight about the humility and also says don't do any work, no work at all. It's a day of complete, it's a Sabbath day of complete rest. Well, that wasn't given to us in 16. Leviticus 25 is another one. It's, it talks about sounding a ram's horn. That was another thing that was done on that day. Well, it's not in the Leviticus 16 record, but they're, they're, they would have had the blowing of a, of a ram's horn. Why? Because anytime Israel gathered as a congregation, as a holy convocation, they would call it, there was the sounding of the horn. That's one verse, 25.9. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what's around it, because I didn't have time to actually go in and look at all of these. I'll bet if we read before and after, there might be even more stuff, but... I just pulled out the ones that they gave me. Uh, no, numbers 29, 7 to 11 is the last one. And this one talks about presenting this burnt offering. Uh, in addition to these other sacrifices, there were some more sacrifices that were actually still given on that day as well. And this one says, You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a soothing aroma, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, having... Uh, having them without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and it gives some specifics on, on what that means. One male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement and the continual burn offering. So these are in addition to everything that we see in Leviticus 16, there were actually still some other sacrifices made. Uh, they were busy. That was a busy day and a bloody day, right? Very interesting. Um, also, their drink offerings is another thing that was involved. So the reason I bring this up is to say to you, when you watch the video that we're going to watch here in just a little while, um, they have selected their idea of the process, and they have presented it to us. It's very awesome, though. It actually shows you him doing it and going, and he's going to read from Scripture. He's going to tell you what he, they, they believe the processes were. But I don't believe it encompasses everything. 
okay? So just know that. The point to the Day of Atonement, though, is it presents a message, right? And what you want to know is, what is the message that God is giving to Israel through the Day of Atonement? And that's what we're trying to draw to. So in order to get to that place, first we have to go through and just very technically lay out what were the processes, what were they doing. So we're going to try to simplify, I'm going to simplify it with just some bullet points up here and we can talk about each of them a little bit. But I want to show you that video when we're done. And I think that will bring everything kind of to an end that'll be really good for you. Okay, let's start with Leviticus um, 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Now, I broke that down because there's, just like it, with anything, there's an introductory uh, quality to this, right? And in this introduction, he's telling you something about the holy place, and he's actually making a contrast with something that happened in the past, and then he's contrasting it with everything else he's going to tell you after it. So, in literally, you can contrast verse 1, Contrasted with verses 2 to 34. Okay? So what does he say in verse 1? They did. So apparently there was an event that you would need to go back and research and study. For those of us who did Leviticus, we know about this event. We saw it. We, so it's probably, it may be foggy, but it's in your memory somewhere, right? That Aaron's sons approached the, the Lord and gave um, strange fire. And they did it without, in a, first of all, they weren't the one qualified to approach the Lord in this manner. And then what they gave to the Lord then was also strange fire. And the consequence of this is that both of the sons of Aaron died. Okay? So that's in verse 1. They had died. And then in contrast to that, then you follow after this and everything else that is said in the rest of the book of Leviticus tells them what? how to approach God and when to approach God, right? Okay, so verses 1 and 2 then, in, in conclusion then, tells us that there is an appropriate way to approach God and, and they have to do it that way, right? So the, you might just say that 1 and 2 are the regulations. And in essence, it's not any, not um, at any time, not at, and I'm going to put add the word just in there because it makes it better in the English, N not at just any time. In other words, there's a specific time and God is the one that's going to dictate that to them. He's going to tell them at what time he, they may approach God. Now, when it's speaking about approaching God in this context, what is it specifically meaning and what is it not meaning? In this, in this encounter, approaching God means to do what? As opposed to what they do the rest of the year. They do a lot of festivals. They do a lot of sacrificing all through the year, right? There you go. Enter into the mer before the mercy seat. That's the distinction of this one. You're not to approach the God at just any time. It's speaking of going into the holy of holies. And so in this record, how often do they go in before the Holy of Holies? One time a year, even though there's multitudes of, of other festivals that they have, and all year long they are entering, and the priests are continually doing these sacrifices right in the outer tabernacle of the holy place. 
uh, and they're doing that daily. But they are never, they are only to enter within the Holy of Holies one time a year. So it's distinctive. These are the regulations. So he's laying that out in one and two. And in th now the next thing is in three to five. Now here's another example of how scripture often does things for us. If you got confused by looking at three to five and then you hit verse six and you're going, oh, wait a minute, okay, now wait a second, didn't we just do that? Now we're back to that again, right? So what's going in in three to five? What does God often do? Like, for instance, when he gave the creation record in chapter one, and then he went into chapter two, and he did what? Yes, go give it to me, Martha. Right, so in this case, he gives big picture, three to five, and then he starts in six, and he does what? Piece by piece by piece, right? Yes. Right? Exactly. So he tells them big picture and then details. So let's put us on here, just big picture, order, right? And then starting in 6 uh, to 10, we begin with our, then it's going to go to details, right? Are you catching it now? Can you see that? Does that help you at this point? Now, what's very interesting, though, is in 3 to 5, there are some details that he gives to you about the order that he eliminates when he gives you the details. And, like, you have to go back to 3 to 5 to get those details and then put them in appropriately at the right place later on when you get to that particular point, like the scapegoat issue. They give you a lot of details in the big picture about the scapegoat, but then when you get to the scapegoat, they don't t tell you all those points. You have to go back to what you looked at in the three to five verses and kind of pull those in and put them down where in the detail points when you hit that particular sacrifice. Well, you know, in 3 to 5 it says, you shall enter with required sacrifices and then prepare himself. That's what that basically is saying. Big picture. You're going to enter with the appropriate sacrifices and then you're going to prepare yourself to take care of these duties. And I'm going to tell you what they are. And so he does. Brings in a bull for a sin offering. He brings in a ram for a burnt offering. He bathes his body. He puts on holy garments of linen. linen. And by the way, when he puts on holy garments of linen, that's interesting. We didn't, this chapter does not develop it, but what do you see that's distinctive going on there? What does he take off and what does he put on? Pardon? Okay, there's a cleansing, which is pictorial of cleansing. Could be, uh, could be, yes. What is the articles that, he, that the high priest normally wears when he's doing his duties? Robes and garbs and the breastplate with the stones and the urim and the thummim and a big thing and a, sh and a prayer shawl and, I mean, all kinds of things, right? Well, he takes that off, and what does he put on for this Day of Atonement? Simple, plain linen. What is the message in that, do you think? Humility. Isn't that interesting? There's a passage in Philippians 2 that talks about Jesus taking on us in humility and how he humbled himself and took on the flesh of man, and he did these things. Uh, it's really a great thing. It was just a little sideline I wanted to throw in there. Absolutely. Well, they're definitely the, the fine linen always 
depictive of righteousness. So he is our righteous high priest. He still carries the authority of the high priest. And later he's going to put those garbs back on, those high priestly garbs back on to finish some of the other ceremonial parts. But when he goes in for the sin offering, he's dressed in simplicity and humility. Why? Why do you think? Well, first of all, God told him to. But in, if you think of it, you know, on the one hand, he is the p- picture of Christ who comes as our great high priest, right? Who certainly qualifies to wear all that and more, right? As king of kings and in, in, in righteousness. But on the day of atonement, there's also a quality about this priest who makes him just an individual, right? So he, it's kind of like he has to carry both hats visually, And so in this, God, through this process, actually makes a way for both depictions to be given and both pictures and messages then to be retained. But at this point right now where he's going to go in, when he himself is ready to go in to begin the process of making atonement for sin with the blood sacrifices, he removes his high priestly garments and he becomes one of the people. And he, and he dresses himself in linen, which is what, just white linen. It's a very simple tunic. And we're going to see all this in the, in the video. Right. Right. And by the way, it's not just himself. Himself and, and his household. Now, what does that mean, and his household? There you go, Susan, and the priestly line, because he's making atonement for the priestly line, okay? So the first, for, so the first one in 6 to 10 is a sin offering, right? For the priestly, for the priestly line, 6 to 10, Okay? And, he, and so, and do you remember what some of those things were? What, what did they do? What did he offer? A bull. A bull for his sin offering. Okay. And in 6 to 10, he goes on to say some other things that he's doing at that time is he, he um, receives the goats from the congregation, right? And then what does he do? Cast lots. Now, this is another subject. We've had this one come up in our classes before. Someone explained to me the idea of casting lots. What, what is that about? That's right. It's God deciding it. And um, when you read about casting lots in scriptures, we even have a New Testament passage in Acts. Remember when we saw them casting lots for who the 12th would be? What, how valid is that is that particular practice, that ritual of casting lots? Well, not now, not now, because now it's replaced with what? The Holy Spirit. But under the old covenant, and by the way, when they casted lots for the 12, had the Holy Spirit yet fallen? No. So they were still under the old covenant law. So the idea, no, what did the, the high priest carry upon his chest? The Urim and the Thummim, right? And what were those for? For casting lots. They were considered high holy articles. So I just want you to know that. Because God is the one who instituted this. Now we know, even in scripture, we see the pagan world doing. We see the Romans cast lots as well. But there is a specific order given by God for casting of lots. And when God's people do it under the 
humility of waiting on God to show them the way. There's an, an expectation that God is going to be the one to give the decision. And when you do it with that kind of reverential humility before God, it's absolutely valid and legitimate, and it was God-determined. These are high holy articles that God instituted. And in this particular high holy day, the Day of Atonement, there was a casting of lots for two goats. Very interesting, okay? So I just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit because I do think it's a, it's a significant point. And I've no, uh, it, it was something actually came up in one of our sermons just recently when, when we were going through Acts. But the, high, the, the, the casting of lots was 100% validated by God, instituted by God for the purpose of finding divine will under the old covenant because they did not have the Holy Spirit at that time. Once the Holy Spirit came, then that was done. Okay, so the casting of goats, and then they had two goats. What were the goats? Was there a name for one of those goats? The scapegoat. I tell you, I can tell you, I've been a scapegoat a bunch. <laughs> How about you guys? <laughs> okay, so scapegoat, and the, then there was one I thought was interesting. The other one is called the, the goat for the Lord. I liked the way that that was put in some ways, but I bet he didn't. So what did that, so, so what did that goat do? What did you do with the other goat that was not the scapegoat? It was the sacrifice. And who was it a sacrifice for? For sin and for who? For all the people, for the whole congregation. Now, I want you to notice something. Um, let's, well, let's go on to, hold on a second here, 10. Let's do the next one. Let's go to the next one. Let's do 11 to 14, and we'll, we'll get to that, the point I had in my head there. Six to ten. Uh, Oops, I got these out of order, you guys, didn't I? I am so sorry. Three to five shall enter with required sacrifices. Let me read. Let me redo this. I am so sorry. It's okay. You're going to get my copy. I forgot to write on here. Three to five shall enter with required sacrifices. This was the complication in doing this. I thought it was really difficult. And prepare himself. That was in 3 to 5. Then 10 and 11 is um, the priestly sin offering. Six to 10. Is that what I said? The priestly. <laughs> I know, this is horrible. The priestly sin offering. Okay, all right, so the priest is an offering. We just went through the bull. He takes, and then what else does he do besides offering the bull? There's another step in there. When you get in, um, yeah, six to 10, big picture. I know, I'm sorry, you guys, big picture. Then go into details. The details start in 11, okay? I'm going to do it that way to help myself. So actually, when you look at the passage of uh, Leviticus, this is Leviticus 16, from 1 to 10 just kind of lays it out. This is what's going to happen today on the Day of Atonement. 
Then you start in verse 11, and he begins to say, now do this, do this, do this, do this. And he tells you what he's going to do. So 11 to 14 is the priestly sin offering. Right? And we said he offers a, bo a bull. We know that, that back here when he was giving them the big picture qualities, he talks about there's going to be a scapegoat that's going to be like they're going to cast lots for it, right? Now we got, now once you get into the details, you're looking at the, at the, the priestly sacrifice. He offers a bull. What is the next thing that he does? There you go. He takes a fire pen full of coals. He takes from the, from the brazen altar and he goes into the holy place with them. And it says it goes within where? Within the veil. So he, go, he takes that and he takes also besides coals, he takes with him what? Incense. Now why does he do that? And he takes the coals and the incense and he goes within the veil with it, right? So this is the first time he goes within the veil. You might want to write that down as an, a note. Number one, first time within the veil enters within the veil. This is going to slightly differ from what you're going to watch on the tape, by the way, the video. But in here, it does say it very clearly in 12 and 13 of, of Leviticus 16, he, and he brings it inside the veil, that what would happen? There's going to be smoke, and the picture of that is the, the, the incense altar is a picture of Christ as our intercessor, correct? So the incense then that's carried within the veil, it, fi it fills that inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies for the purpose of what? To, yes, to basically be an intercessor between the high priest when he goes in to give the sacrifices on that altar. It's an intercessor then for him so that he is not going to do what? He's not going to die. Not yet. The first time he goes in, he enters within the veil with incense. Okay, so that's the first thing he does. Goes within the veil with incense. Then the next time he goes in, right after that, the next time he goes in, number two, he enters within the veil with what? With the blood of what? Of the bull. So that's for his sins and for the sins of his household, meaning the Levitical priesthood, right? Yes. Well, possibly, and this is where we're, it doesn't say that anywhere in scripture, but this is what tradition teaches, and I remember researching this years back because we actually did kind of a, a demonstration of, a, of how he would come in and he would enter, he would set it then before the Lord, before the ark, and then he would go, go back out, and the reason, now the other ones said, the, uh, now the other traditions say no, because you would never turn your back on God. But what he would not do is not cast his eyes upon the Ark of the Covenant, lest he be consumed. So he would keep his eyes uh, diverted off of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would basically watch the ground, and he would enter in with that, putting his um, incense before the altar and then backing out, never turning his back on God. I kind of like that one better now that I've thought it through more and I've had a little more other insights from different places, and every one kind of depicts it slightly different. The idea is don't look upon the Ark of the Covenant before the, it, the, before the intercessor is in place. 
So, which makes sense, doesn't it? So the whole point to this is, you know, because we're Gentile, we're, we're talking thousands of years after all this has happened. We're just trying to figure out what they did. Even the Jews kind of argue about this amongst themselves, so don't feel like you're alone in this. The point is, we want to get each of the points of the picture in place, and what is the point to the picture, right? Mm-hmm. A sweet aroma. Oh my goodness, yes. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. I, I kind of hate to, s- to give you this picture in your mind, but it came to my mind. I think about visiting my grandmother's attic. And that smell, that musty smell that would get on me. And then I would come downstairs and I'd be near to my mom or my sister. And they'd go, ooh, you smell. That's exactly what you're saying. It's exactly right. But in a positive way. And <laughs> I know. But, but the idea is, is you're right. There's this, the idea of the sweet aroma. And there's New Testament scripture that talks about us being a sweet aroma or a smell of stench, depending on who, whose presence you're in. To those who are being saved, a sweet aroma, right? To those who are perishing, a stench of death. And, so, and I tell you, that's a beautiful understanding about the whole quality of, of bearing the, the fragrance of God upon you and walking in the midst of a world. You know, the, the world does not love us all, do, do they? The, and if they're of the world, they hate you in many ways, if they're of the world. Um, and, unless, of course, you're able to lovingly bring them into a, a relationship with you where you can draw them into faith, then they'll turn and be your best friend forever, right? But while they're yet enemies of God, they are repulsed by you. Why? Yeah, because of your fragrance. You stink to them. Right. That's ex- and that's what it goes back down to. He says, they, they hate you because they first hated what? Me. That's what Jesus said. He says, they hate you because they first hated me. They, ha- they hate me and therefore they're going to hate you. Okay, so, yes, you can, Margaret. I'm sure it do, I'm sure it does at some point. Maybe even the next year when they're doing the thing they take that incense from last year That could be. It could you know what it doesn't say. But you just use your imagination. Do you want that pan there all year long or do you want it to be removed? I think I honestly think it gets taken out because they use a specific sensor for the inner sanctuary. It's one of the reasons why we have a complication when we look at the first part of Hebrews 9 where it says the incense altars within the veil. But it really doesn't say it's within the veil. It says it's pertaining to the veil, pertaining to the inner sanctuary. Why? Because the incense is completely connected to the inner sanctuary work. The intercessor has to go in and work its work as the intercessor so that the high priest can then go within the veil. So that's why I think the way, the way it says it, let me look at 9 again real quickly with you if you want to do that, just so we can cover that at the moment that we're speaking of it. 
Uh, oh, no, it's not nine. It's ten. Sorry. Ten. Nope, it's not nine. It is nine. Nine, four. Thank you. Okay, so in verse, let's start at three. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar. Now, it's not saying, it's not saying that the golden altar of incense is within the veil. It says it has a golden altar. Are you seeing it now that you're looking at it a little more carefully? We know that in that incense, table of incense, altar is outside the veil it's in the holy place and the priests use it all year long and they stand before it and they they burn the incense and they and they swoof the the, the fragrance of God you know up to the up to heaven we know it's a picture of the intercessory prayers of the of the priesthood right and uh, and for today we are God the priest of the household of God right and as God's priests in the world today, what do we do with prayers? We, our prayers work as an intercessor for those around us, right? For one another and for those in the world that we're, we're um, encouraging to come into faith. The intercessory work of, of God is worked through the prayers. There's a verse in Revelation that talks about them. Uh, yes, <clears throat> that the prayers of the saints are at that at this altar this that he goes this angel goes before him and he and he collects the um the coals from the altar and he says and these are the prayers of the saints and I always think of that that your prayers are being collected and one day God pours those out upon the earth all right now okay so uh bu- 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 where are we okay he enters the second time so he enters the first time the veil within the veil with the incense then he enters the second time uh with the blood of the of the bull right that's the second time now we're going to go to 15 to 17 that's our next division and in this one it says uh, we're covering what what particular offering are we working on now the sin offering for the people so this one is the all israel sin offering Now, the reason I wanted to kind of put it that way is because the first one is the priestly sin offering. And secondarily, then when you get into this one, he concludes it in verse 17. He says, and when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place with this goat, correct? That second time he goes in with with blood. Uh, It's actually the third time into the inner sanctuary but it's the the second time with blood so it's taking in the blood of the goats and he says no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for who for himself and his household and for all the assembly of Israel so what I'm pointing out to you is what what are you seeing there that might be significant you may have missed he's now one of the people and so are who all his household who are the Levites. So the first offering is for the priestly line, is for that priesthood. The second one is for the people, it's the individual. So the first one is more of a, co- of a collective group, the priesthood. The next one, the goat offering, is going to be for all the people, including the priest and his household as well.
Oh, yeah. And lots of blood. Yes. I know. Yeah, exactly. No, you're just saying. And what might, what might that impress on these people as they're observing all this? And you know, one of the things you got to remember, to go back to our Leviticus study, how often did they slaughter an animal? Well, they did, they did it, but only where? Only at, the, only at the altar. And if they weren't, if they did not go to the altar, and if the priest did not slaughter it, what happened anytime blood was shed in, in, the, in Israel, the, among the nation of Israel? They would be considered unclean. And they had to do what? Some kind of a ceremonial process to become clean. There were steps or processes. They had to go, go through washings. Also, what did they do with the, any blood that was shed? They had to bury it in the dirt, in the earth. Now, this is very interesting because one of the things you see with this is when he goes in and makes these atonements for sin with the bull offering and the, and the goat offering, what we're going to hit here in a minute is there's additional blood left over, and what does he do with it? He pours it where? And he first he sprinkles the altar for cleansing, but then he, he pours it where? On the ground. See, it's right back to Leviticus where they would use the earth to cover it up. Isn't that interesting? That's right. It did, and that probably tells you how little they ate meat. <laughs> they were probably mostly vegetables and, and grains. And that's right. Mm -hmm. Tells you how often they, that meat was special. It was something that was done on occasion. On these high holy days, they all got to have meat, right? Very interesting insight, huh? No. No, no. The, now, when you're talking about within the veil, that's the, okay, 15 to 70. Okay, well, let's go there now. Let's do 18 and 19. There is an altar at the door. That's correct. That's right. That's the brazen altar where they make their sacrifice, the brazen altar. No, that's the altar at the door. Then is she, do you see the word go out? Okay, so underline that twice so that you catch it. He shall go out to the altar. So this is the brazen altar. Now, what's going on in 18 and 19 then? A lot of sprinkling on what kind of articles? In verse 20, it tells you what's going on there, and also in 34, at the end of 34. It's an atoning for what? Read verse 34, someone. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to do what? To make atonement for what? For the sons of Israel. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed the, I missed the correct verse. Go back up to 33. To make atonement for, and it gives you a list of the things that you were, that this whole process atoned for. What was on the list besides the people? All these holy articles, the holy sanctuary, and the tent of meeting, and 
the altar. So if you didn't totally catch that, that's what's going on in 18 and 19. Then at the, at the close of this chapter, by the time you got to the end, he gives you the complete outline of all the things that get atoned for on that day. He, he basically concludes it at the end to say what they have just accomplished at the end of that day. So 18 and 19 then is cleansing and consecrating of the holy place and the holy articles. It sure is. Aren't you glad we're under the new covenant? It was done once for all and we are done. In some ways it's sad because we also don't seriously contemplate what Jesus did for us and see all the symbolics. But that, that's the wonderful value of doing this kind of an inductive Bible study. You do slow down, you stop and you ponder. What were each of these points for? So that when you consider what Jesus did for you at the cross, you are saying this is a much better covenant. First of all, we don't have to do all that. But second of all, when you, I think probably the, mo the more significant thing for us this week is just saying this is what he actually did. He cleansed every single quality for us in our way to approach God. It's a new way to approach God. Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It's to consecrate the holy places. Oh, because that's the true altar. The one here is called the what? The earthly otter or the the copy. Absolutely it is because it's the true. And to have, actually have access into the true father. Where the one on the earth was a temporary thing. And by the way, do we have the, the, do we have the temporary any longer? At what point in history did Israel lose their, their sanctuary and the Shekinah glory's presence? In 78. Well, no, before that. Ezekiel. When Israel broke their covenant to the point that God then exiled them from the land, he, remember we got into Ezekiel, was it 12 and 13, right? Something like that of Ezekiel where the Shekinah glory leaves the tabernacle or the, the tabernacle and then it leaves the city in those two verses, in those two chapters. And so, and then did the Shekinah glory ever return as far as we know? No, there is no record anywhere in scripture, even when the second temple is built, the Shekinah glory is not recorded as returning. Now, the point to the story that we did back in, um, uh, I've forgotten which chapter it was that we looked at again. I, we just looked at it a minute ago. In 1 Samuel 4, remember in 1 Samuel 4, the point to that picture was, was the Shekinah glory being present upon the altar, the only assurance that, that they had that God was present with them and, and had the power to do all the things for them that they said. Because she named her child Ichabod, was it a true statement that, that, that God had departed? No, God had not departed. Now, they, they, their tabernacle had been taken into captivity. But what was the, what was t the message of that storyline showing us about Israel's understanding about their God? They didn't. They had, they had reverted to rituals and articles as that being that. I mean, do we see that even today? Are there people who rely more upon their, their 
their statues or their rituals in their church services? Do they rely on that more to, to in their mind, be, quote, either right with God or in the presence of God? Or do they walk in the reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them daily as they go through their everyday life? And this woman's story of naming her child Ichabod shows you that they had lost the, the truth message of a broken and contrite heart before God and an understanding of a sovereign God over his nation, number one. And number two, had forgotten the promises that God had given to Abraham, who by faith was reckoned as righteous. So she had bit off on the lies of circumstances, saying to her that God was no longer there and no longer cared and was no longer present. Well, when the Shekinah glory left Israel and that nation, did that mean he left them vacated? No, we still see God. Actually, he works through the heart of Cyrus later and returns them to the land. A man who was a pagan king, right? We see them then get the temple rebuilt. And they get, they get re, um, returned back to their land in part during the Babylonian, then the Medo-Persian, then the Greek Empire, then all the way day into the days of Rome when Jesus comes upon the earth. After that, in 70 AD, there's another diaspora, right? The people are evacuated again to all the uttermost parts of the world. We are waiting for the day when God is going to bring them back. And as a matter of fact, this day of atonement in part is associated with that day. There are three feasts. There's something you have to do, have to kind of keep in mind. I decided not to go there with it, but there are seven great feasts, right? There are four that are called a spring feast. There are three that is a fall feast. This one falls when? In the fall. And the fall is around November-ish, right? And these three feasts specifically are going to be fulfilled for Israel, the nation, at the time when he fulfills those things for them, right? But the Day of Atonement does have a fulfillment for us because the, the, the fulfillment of the atonement blood that, that we're looking at here does what for us according to he, Hebrews chapter 9? There's a veil that has, uh, that has been standing, and once the veil is removed, then what? Then the inner sanctuary has been disclosed. While it remains standing, it's not disclosed. So for us, is it been disclosed? Do we have access? Absolutely. But for the Jewish nation, it is still standing. And it, for the eyes of them, that, like you see in um, Romans 11, it says that their eyes are still veiled. They don't see the reality of what God has uh, already, they aren't appropriating it by faith. Okay? All right, this gets complicated. So we got to hurry so we can watch this video. I was thinking we would do the video in between, but I think we're going to need to just keep moving and try to get all this up here. Okay, so there's a cleansing and consecrating of the holy places that's going to take place. That's in 18 to 19. Then in 20 to 22, what happens there? It's another offering of the live goat. We call it the scapegoat so that you know, all right? Aaron confesses sins of the people upon that goat. Again, it's equal to the other sacrificial goat as being a sin offering, correct? In that the sins are placed upon it. But, it, but what do you see that's different about it? The other one is sacrifice, and what happens with this one? It, runs off. it goes, and where does it go? Into the wilderness. So there's another picture God's wanting you to see in that particular message.
Yeah. Well, there's. They're, the, the picture is they're released and gone. And then there's tradition that talks about uh, a thread that changes colors when the goat dies and so forth. But, yeah. This, does it say it in Leviticus 16? Okay, so just hang on to that, and that's all we want to know for right now. Yeah, to research that part out, you're going to have to go in and find out what part of it is tradition and what part of it is scripture. And I think you're going to find that Scripture simply shows that there's a scapegoat that takes your sins into the wilderness, okay? And there's a picture in that for us to, to understand God's salvation plan and his message of who Jesus is for us. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. Okay, so, and, and there's lots of, pro, you know, parts as we're going to, not have time to totally expand on, but Aaron confesses sins of the, uh, the sins of the sons on the head of the live goat. He sends the scapegoat away into the wilderness. And it's very interesting. By the hand of a man who stands in readiness. I, w I would love to discuss that, but we don't have time. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. That's really cool. It's really, is it warm in here to you guys? Or is it just me? Whew. The man in readiness then shall release the goat into the wilderness. That's what it tells us in 22. And that's all we know from this record. Okay. All right. Now, 23 and 24, the next thing is going to be what? Yes. And, and, then, and then offer what? The burnt offerings. Right? And there's more than one. Aaron enters the tent of meeting. He bathes. He puts on his priestly garments now. Right? And he offers, this is really cool though, because the idea of the priestly garments, now that sin has been, has been confessed and sin has been atoned for, now he is, put, he is putting on a new identity as a forgiven and cleansed child. And in this case, he is the high priest. But he, he puts on what? The garb of the great high priest again. He puts back on his clothing as the high priest. There's a picture in that for you and me. Right? Atonement is made for you and you become what? Cre uh, that's right. Clothed now as a, as a high priest unto God. Okay. And he offers his, his burnt offering in 24 and also another burnt offering for who? For the people. So that's, what's, that's what takes place in 23 and 24. Then we go to 25 to 28. We're almost there. And in 25 to 28, there's, uh, it tells you what happens with the rest of the stuff that was left over. There had been a blood sacrifice of a bull and, the, and a goat, correct? Now, what do they do with the carcass the, and the entrails and the things that are left over? Fire, that's right. It's a sin it, there's a sin offering of the carcasses. Or, the, or what happens with, it's the sin, offering car, uh, uh, the sin offering carcasses. What do they do with them, right? What is done? What is done with them, right? And I put the word carcasses because I didn't want to write out all, all those other words. <laughs> it was just, I just consolidated. They offer the fat of the sin offering on the altar, and then the one who has released the goat washes himself, comes back into the camp. The bull and the goat carcasses of the sin offerings are taken outside the camp to be burned. 
and the one who burns them then shall wash himself and redress and return back into the inner camp. Okay? And then a then we see con two conclusion points, or really one big conclusion point. We're going to do it all together. We're going to do uh, 29 to 34 in one grouping here. And it speaks of this as being a permanent what? A permanent statute. And there's a couple of extra details then given to us in this closing part. Tells us when, right? When is it? The seventh month and 10th day, right? All right, that's in 29, I think, verse 29. And he says, then he gives some more details about that particular statute. It's for the purpose of you doing what? Humbling your souls, and then what do you not do? No work at all. You shall be clean from your sins before the Lord, and, and it's considered a what? A Sabbath, a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. Yes, Lisa. Ah, yes, 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 or Gehenna, I think, is another one. So, yeah, absolutely, and the, 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 the whole burnt offering concept of is a whole offering unto the Lord or that he was a complete offering unto, for us. And it's in verse 33, the purpose of this permanent statue in the seventh month, the tenth day, is to make atonement. Um, it's done how often? Once every year. And just as the Lord commanded it. And then you, you see a list. You might want to make yourself a list. I don't have time to do it for you. It's for the holy sanctuary, for the tent of the meeting, for the altar, for the priests, for all the people. And it's for, for what? All their sins, right? Now, I missed, unfortunately, I'm out of time, but I did an entire word study on the word sins that are accumulated throughout the book of here. There's, there's, the word sin is 2403, impurities 2932, transgressions 6588, and iniquities 5771. These are found throughout the passage of Leviticus 16. And when you do a word study on all those different synonyms for the word sin, what you find is this covers every sin that you can imagine. It is for all sin. So when you go back to Hebrews 9, my point is, when he says in Hebrews 9 that it is um, the, sins for, um, the sins committed in ignorance, now I know what does that not mean? That it's not unintentional sins. That is not what he's saying there. That actually goes back to chapter 5. I think it's 5.8. Let me look where he's talking about the high priest. No, it wasn't eight, maybe. Let me see if I can find it. Hold on, give me a second, dear. I've got it here somewhere. It's in one of my notes, but I got to, uh, Hebrews 5.2, sorry. Go back to Hebrews 5.2. Remember when we were seeing the beginning where it gave us the understanding of what the purpose for the high priest was and how, and, and what his responsibilities were as why Jesus had to take on flesh that he would identify with us, right? And it says, and he, therefore, one of the things is that a priest needed to be taken from among men. And why was that? He says, because he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. So those sins done in ignorant is talking about a misguided person. Basically, we're, 
you know, we're sinners. That's what it's saying. So the, sin, the sins in, of ignorance is not unintentional sin, which is what I thought it was. It's actually saying it's just for the ignorant and misguided people, okay? And you know that and you confirm that by looking in Leviticus where you see five different synonyms used in the, and it covers every possible kind of sin you can imagine, okay? And, the, and they are all intentional. <laughs> okay, got it. Now we're ready to watch the video. I think the video will be very helpful to you. It'll help, it'll help to give you a visual of what we just went through. <laughs> 